The percentage of homes in the U.S. purchased by investors is rising sharply. It's now nearly one in four. The average home buyer is having a harder and harder time competing, especially as this influx of institutional capital continues to drive up prices. So are we in danger of becoming a nation of renters, leasing our homes from hedge fund landlords? When you think about the amount of capital that's being raised because money's free, so why not? And investors are looking for a better return than you know treasury bonds. So they're going to their you know big private equity funds and they're saying, you know, I want to get a better return. So they're raising all this money. They've got to actually allocate those funds that they raise. And they don't want to invest in hospitality or retail or office. So guess what? Single family residential is the prettiest girl at the dance and everyone's going there. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder Adam Taggart, welcoming you back for another week of making sense of money and the markets so that you can make better informed decisions about building your wealth. Now, I recently tweeted out this chart from CoreLogic showing how a rising percentage of single family homes are being purchased by investors, nearly one in four. The chart really hit a nerve, and my tweet went viral, performing 100 times more than usual. I think it sparked so much attention because it caused folks to ask, is the individual homeowner becoming squeezed out of the housing market? Housing prices have risen to all-time highs this year, while affordability has declined dramatically. Are we on our way to becoming a nation of renters, leasing from the wealthy investor class who will eventually own all of the houses? To address this, I'm excited to welcome Ivy Zellman to the program. Ivy is CEO of Zellman & Associates, the leading housing research firm in the U.S. Ivy, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Excited. All right. Well, I want to get to that big question I just mentioned. But before we do, I usually ask our guests who are sort of uh, financial market specialists for their overview of the global economy and the financial markets. I'd just like to ask you at a high level, can you give us your current assessment of the U.S. housing market? Well, the current assessment is that the housing market has been extremely robust and we are now seeing moderation. I think there's buyer fatigue. You pointed out the surge in home prices that we've witnessed really since uh, May of last year that home prices started taking off. And I'm pretty cautious about the outlook, uh, really based on our demographic outlook, um, married with the concern that we have a lot of non-primary buyers in the market that are increasingly driving home prices up through higher velocity, which I'm happy to elaborate on. So we're pretty cautious today and we're raising some concerns that hopefully will help individuals navigate what could be um, difficult, more choppy waters ahead. Okay, great. So yes, if you please can elaborate on the role velocity plays here. And also if you can address if it's the, the, the market's being driven more than it has been by non-primary buyers, which I assume you mean, you know, investors or people purchasing second, third homes, et cetera. Is it true or safe to assume that those hands are weaker hands, meaning that if, if trouble begins brewing in the housing market, people will sell those properties first because it's not their primary residence? Absolutely. And I think we have to recognize that prior to COVID, you know, the inventories in the United States were pretty much at record lows, but yet home prices were only up modestly. I think 19 home prices in the U.S., existing home prices 
taxes increased 5%, which was a very solid year, that, that would be historically a great year. And so yet, you know, inventories were at record lows. So when you have the COVID phenomena come to fruition, what we had was a plummeting level or interest rates plummeted. And so when you think about the mobility of today's homeowners incentive, the incentive for mobility accelerated because you have this great arbitrage now where you can sell your existing home at a much lower rate than you're currently locked in at, and you can go buy a home and maybe have had equity appreciation to really justify that. So if you look at velocity pre-COVID, and we define velocity as homes that are available for sale at the end of the month and are then sold within that then 30 subsequent days. So historically, if you go back to 2000, so 21 years of velocity, the average has been about 21%. When you look at 2021, January and February, velocity hit 50%. And we're currently at about 43%. So what's going on? Well, our view is that the incremental buyer in the marketplace, which has been fueled by our horrible policy of the Fed, which has been to keep interest rates artificially low, I jokingly say that you know, Jay Powell is the bartender at a raging party and is serving, continuing to serve a crowd that's already well overserved. And so what you had is just this massive amount of speculation as home prices are rising, that you have primary buyers buying, you have now what we call non-primary buyers, which is inclusive of second home buyers. So people that have dual properties, maybe two, three properties that got, you know, nervous and they didn't want to be in New York City, let's say. So they had a place in the city and then they said, well, we have a place in Miami, but we're going to go buy a house in, in Westchester or in New Jersey or Connecticut. So you wind up having people with dual properties, but then you have a whole other slew of investors. We actually call um, the level of investors um, coming in the market sort of a new uh, type of investor. We call them liquidity providers. And this is happening in many of the hottest markets. We'll call the smile states, the, the sand states, and, and, and recognizing that you know, pretty much from the great financial crisis, that's where the, the risk was the greatest and because that's where the capital goes. So right now your liquidity providers, think about iBuyers, think about bridge financers, think of people that are willing to give you liquidity, Adam, and you are going to be able to now get cash because someone's going to buy your house from you or backstop your existing home and give you the cash to go buy a home. And that business model is predicated on velocity. They do not want to hold the asset. They're just market makers. They're buying a house, they're putting some lipstick on the pig, and then they're going to sell it. And when that happens, it's incrementally positive in a seller's market because it's driving higher velocity, therefore driving higher home prices. But what happens when it's no longer a seller's market and it becomes a balanced market or a even worse, a buyer's market? They're going to turn those assets and continue to try to move and monetize them to get back their money. And no better example of that is currently with what Zillow just had, what, what happened with Zillow. It's yeah. a complete disaster, total disaster. But besides, let's, be, let's just leave liquidity providers as one segment, which includes iBuyers, bridge financers. Then you also has, have SFR buyers, institutional investors that are buying homes that are you know, really for the same box, the same home as a first-time buyer. So they're all kind of in the same price point so they can buy those homes and lease them out. So they're investors. And then we have private investors, mom and pop investors that want in on the action to diversify from the stock market. So these are people that will step in and buy homes sight unseen, whether they be new home, existing home, but they're looking to make a return. You, you buy a home in Austin right now, 
if you had in January of 21, you'd be up over 30%. So people speculate. So you have fix and flip investors. They're buying old homes. They see an opportunity to put, again, refurbishment, maybe gutting and or just the lipstick on the pig, and then they turn around and sell it. So all of these investors in aggregate are no question in our opinion, driving incremental market, increasing that velocity that I referred to. And it's going to be what bites us in the ass on the way down. Because when they, they don't stick around and say, you know what? Hey, honey, it's not a good time to sell. Let's just wait it out. They're going to move the inventory. And that's what the problem with investors, what, what the real issue with investors are, is they're not the, the sticky owners. Second homeowners might be more sticky. True second homeowners, I have a second home. You know, I'm not going to sell it. I live there with my family when I when I go there. So I think that they're the stickiest of the group of types of investors that I just provided for you. All right. Well, Ivy, look, you are the housing expert that I've been dreaming of finding for many years. So <laughs> thank you. And that was a that was a great summation. And there's really so much in there that I want to dive into. I'm worried about all the other questions I had prepared for you. Um, okay. One of the things that you really put your finger on there was you were calling it the incremental buyer in previous videos here with this audience. I've called it the importance of the marginal buyer, right? Housing is priced at the margin. You have a bunch of houses on the block. Basically all their market value is set by the last house to sell, right? So you can have one transaction affect all inventory. Um, and you just said there's, there's been a whole bunch of reasons recently why capital has been flooding into to housing. Um, interest rates went down, right? So, so debt became a lot cheaper. Um, that actually lower interest rates raise housing prices in and of itself. Um, and people were sitting on equity gains and, uh, you know, they all of a sudden had the ability, uh, to use those gains to, you know, potentially speculate in a new house, move into a bigger house, whatever. Um, you mentioned that COVID was a factor as well, that people were living in places and decided, Hey, maybe I want that country getaway. You know, if I live in New York and I know that in places around the country, but particularly New York, you know, you had a ton of people based in the city, either moving out or buying uh, inventory in the other surrounding States. Um, I know as far as like Maine and Vermont, like literally there were small towns with just no inventory. They just sort of disappeared <laughs> overnight. Right. Um, I see you nodding here, but then we also, you, you mentioned this really briefly. Um, uh, well, actually, I'm not even sure if you mentioned this part, which is um, inflation has started spiking this year. And a lot of people think of real estate as an inflation protection asset, right? So there's been that incentive as well, which is, hey, maybe I'm gonna take some money out of the stock market, invest it in housing instead, because you know uh, it's, a, it's a hard asset. And it has a rental stream that will increase with inflation, right? I can increase rents as, as inflation goes up. Um, and of course, that's led to all that's led to higher prices, which have created the speculative momentum effect. Oh, housing's going up. You mentioned, I think it was Phoenix or you know, some market that, or Austin, that was up 30% uh, in the past year. You know, people see that and they want to jump on that bandwagon. So we've been having all of this momentum to get this capital going uh, in, in the marketplace. Um, uh, you know, I am, <laughs> I am. And in I'm, addition, uh, yeah, and in addition, ahead. Adam, just to, just to layer on, you know, what, what really is kind of scary euphoric is that institutional capital has really not invested um, significantly in re single family residential. And in the last 18 to 24 months, when you think about the amount of capital that's being raised because money's free, so why not? And the investors are looking for a better return than, you know, treasury bonds, 
So they're going to their, you know, big private equity funds and they're saying, you know, I want to get a better return. So they're raising all this money. They've got to actually allocate those funds that they raise and they don't want to invest in hospitality or retail or office. So guess what? Single family residential is the prettiest girl at the dance and everyone's going there. So in the last 18 to 24 months, we published a thematic report on the build for rent market, which by far is the hottest area within the ecosystem. And we just in the last 18 to 24 months, when we published the piece, this is back late summer, 60 billion predominantly unlevered capital announced that publicly they're going to enter the build for rent space by announcing the communities that they intend to build and what markets they intend to build. And since the publication, it's now at 75 billion. I mean, it's like you can't go a week without someone else saying they're going to do a build for rent community or strategy. But when you look at what that's doing to the market, and by the way, they're concentrated in the same smile states where the production home builders are also trying to develop for sale housing. So it's it's inflating land to levels that just don't make any sense, yet they are buying the land and assuming they're going to hit their hurdle rates that they promised their investors. So you have concentration risk driving up development in these markets that will not be able to sustain the prices that I believe they're having to assume in their underwriting. And that is on the development piece. That's nothing to do with what we've been talking about on the velocity of the existing home market. But as you ramp development, whether the box is for sale or the box is for lease, you're going to add more supply to a market that we believe theoretically will be above normalized demand just based on the latest 12 months of starts for single family by more than 20%. So we don't say we're overbuilt yet, but the start that what's being started would arguably put us in an overbuilt situation. But the, the investment community and anyone in the industry, hey, we have a four to six million unit deficit. We can build forever because there's just a shortage of shelter. And what they don't appreciate is the velocity, which we talked about inventory being at record lows prior to COVID. Inventories were at record lows prior to COVID because people were aging in place. People weren't moving. Mobility was under pressure. People were enjoying cash on cash returns from being landlords, or they liked their low rate and they were disincentivized to move. Whole slew of reasons that kept velocity back in that 20% range, that kept home prices running in a three to 5% range. Existing home sales were running up one, 2%. So when you start to look at what the velocity has done, now marry with that euphoric price surging, all the capitals coming into the market, ramping supply, and we believe ramping it above where normalized demand is. It's, it's, it, the, it feels like a storm is brewing, Adam, that is very disconcerting to those markets, more concentrated development than others. Where, where the development is concentrated, those markets are probably more at risk than, let's say, Ohio or you know, Michigan and Pennsylvania and Connecticut, where no one really wants to build. Okay. And, and so can you first just give four or five of these hot markets that you're most concerned about? Just so people have a sense of where they number are. One, number one is Austin. Um, number one is Phoenix. 100% number one. Phoenix has the most euphoria going on. We have the largest iBuyers are in, in terms of percent of transactions are in Phoenix. And the largest built for rent. 19% of starts in Phoenix are built for rent. And so when you look at the development overall and the level of starts versus what we believe household growth is running at, we believe that market will no question be overbuilt. And it may not be overbuilt right this moment, but what's in the pipeline creates the biggest risk. And there's a lot more investors, whether they're I buyers again, SFR buyers, 
Phoenix is the, the capital of, of really, of what, what, where everybody right now is focused. So Phoenix, number one, Dallas, Austin, the Carolinas, Atlanta, um, pretty much Houston. Th- those would be the markets that come top of mind. You also have, of course, the mountain states. So don't forget about Idaho, Utah, and I didn't mention Vegas, but those markets, you know, I'd say what's really been fascinating is like, look at Idaho. Idaho is like, had surging home prices. I, I was there actually in July and I was with friends whose uh, kid is getting, his son is getting married and the fiance and, and the young man were going to look for homes. And they were like, literally saw a $600,000, 3000 square foot home. That was like a meth lab. That was for $600,000. They're like, it d- doesn't make any sense. But right now in Boise, the, the market has turned off and home prices are going, are, are under pressure. There's significant incentives by home builders and affordability just got too, too stretched. And I don't know, the investors are turning away from Boise now at the very same time that all the builders are entering Boise and starting to decide that they want to build there. So I think Boise is an example of how quickly a market can turn and it's starting to, and other markets are still running pretty hot. So the nation right now is not yet seeing any real signs of deceleration but we see some cracks that are starting to become more evident that things are changing. Okay, great. I want to get to that affordability. Um, I'm going to dive deeper into that in just a moment, but just to sort of recap a tiny bit about what you said, um, we're seeing, uh, so we, we've heard from the media, um, heard from a previous housing expert that I had on this program a couple of months ago, uh, that U.S. has been in structural housing inventory deficit for since basically since the global financial crisis. And that's sort of been used as the excuse for why housing is still affordable at these much higher prices. And what I hear you saying is, is maybe that's true in certain markets, but in the really hot markets that we've been seeing, you know, a lot of price appreciation in recently, um, that there's so much new building going on there, as well as just the velocity that you were talking about earlier, that you see those markets actually having a, a, an excess of supply, maybe not today, but you can, you can kind of see a point you know, in the not too distant future where, where they will. And um, at the same time, especially because I think you mentioned it was a, a 60 billion build for rent uh, commitment that's now you know, somewhere upwards of 75 billion. When that gets announced, a lot of people basically front run that. They say, right, those are the markets that I want to be in if uh, there's going to be hot activity there that's going to be a hot market. You know, I want to be an investor there. So it's sort of, it's sort of, uh, you know, it's almost like a bug light that attracts other investors, which just sort of multiplies the overall amount of capital. It's, it's FOMO. It's FOMO. They're it's all FOMO. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So where, where I'm going with this is, is it, it does seem what I hear you saying is that you expect or you're concerned that there, there's going to be a rug pull moment here where we all of a sudden have enough inventory that um, the price premium can't be justified. Um, and, uh, you know, there's, there's going to be, because the marginal buyer is so important, um, you know, when you all of a sudden get to a point where an investor says, look, you know, prices are insanely high, I'm not going to pay that price or I'm not going to pay that price because, hey, more inventory is coming online and I can get it for cheaper. You know, the big question is, is if, if the maximum marginal buyer is here, you know, when the price starts going down, where is the next marginal buyer? Is he right here or is he right here? Right. And it seems from what I'm hearing you saying is, is uh, 
it, it might be a sizable drop once all the, the inventory that's being built comes online. And it, it, I'll let you speak here, but I just want to get one point out for you to react to, which is I, I liken what's going on in the housing market very similarly to what I see in the financial markets as well, which is people kind of have this spear at their back if they want to be in the game. You talked about the the $600,000 house that's kind of like a meth lab. You know, if you're a young family starting out, you got to live somewhere, right? So, you know, people are stretching to afford, you know, the maximum price that they can, they have to pay to get a somewhat livable house, right? Um, and, and, you know, right now there's lenders that are throwing money at them, allowing them to do that. But if we get this turnaround, you know, those are the people who are going to be hurt the most, right? The person who stretched themselves, levered themselves to the hilt to buy basically an appreciating wooden box that, you know, if the market goes from boom to bust, you know, they might be sitting on a 20, 30 plus percent uh, fall in the value of the house they just committed to for the next 30 years. So let me hand it back well, to you. I, yeah, I, I just want to clarify. I think one thing that's really underappreciated, you mentioned that we've been in a structural deficit, you know, since the great financial crisis, we underbuilt. You know, one of the variables, and we believe that as well, you know, we had been saying that we were underbuilt coming out of the great financial crisis. And when you look at the level of normalized demand, it's really a function of household growth. And I would just say that the United States has seen the slowest household growth on record for this prior 10-year period. So when you start to look at the demand inputs, people are not analyzing the demand side. And every state in the country, with the exception of North Dakota, saw slower household growth. So it's not just the nine states that are growing at more than slower than half the rest of the nation. Like where you get um, Connecticut, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Ohio, you add up these nine states, they, they grew at about 4% the last two decades. The nation grew at 8.7, which is the slowest ever on record. And you go back historically, whether it's 70s and 80s, where we're growing you know, double that level, People just use the same number to assume that demand is going to be at the same million five plus, and then they add for demolition or excess vacancies. And so what we're saying is that everywhere in the country is feeling the same negative deceleration. And that's really a function of households that are basically multi-generational living. You have young people that are not leaving home over the past 10 years that you would have expected to. And you can go into 8,000 reasons why those people aren't leaving home. And as you have less immigration, which is also a factor, but you also have what's feeding it is lower fertility rates, lower birth rates. So what we're seeing right now is that we have the second slowest population rate of growth in the history of the country at 7.4% for this prior decade. That was a 10 basis points higher than the 1930s that grew at 7.3%. And it's going to decelerate further going forward. Birth rates declined five and a half percent over the prior 10 years. We expect that to more than double this year. The outlook is very sobering, Adam. So when you start to think about the nation, you're not really safe in any market. You might feel like you're better off. I'm in Texas, builders will say, I don't have to worry. Well, no, no, you do have to worry. The reason you have to worry is that, yeah, maybe Texas household growth is growing at a double digit rate, but housing starts might be growing at twice that household growth rate. So it's all about relative to where you've been and how much production is coming. But I do think you're right. If you're in a market and you're an incremental buyer, you're a school teacher, you're a fireman, you're a police person, you're a healthcare worker, and you're buying with an FHA mortgage and you're putting down three and a half percent and you're buying at today's prices, you're at risk. You're at risk of being underwater very quickly 
if the market turns south and whether it goes down 10% or more, you know, we don't know. I mean, the one thing about mortgage rates, which just drives me absolutely insane, is that when you think about mortgage rates, mortgage rates are driving the entire thing. And it's and, and it's artificially mortgage rates are staying low because of Fed, the Fed, which is ridiculous. Why the hell do they need to be buying 40 billion of MBS is beyond me with housing surging and the inequality gap is only widening and you have cash buyers that are taking away the American dream from all of these hardworking people because home prices are skyrocketing because it's not being driven by primary buyers. So you have now you have rates low. So what happens to the United States from a backlash when mortgage rates go from as little as 3% and change to 4%? A 4% 30-year fixed mortgage rate, I will tell you for the record, will halt this market. We will see the housing market come to a screeching halt because think about, I don't know about you and, and your situation in Northern Cal, you know, if you're a homeowner and you're one of the 67% of homeowners that has a mortgage in the United States, that's locked in below 4% or the 50 high 50% that are locked in below 3.75%. What happens is it's a backlash from a refi boom that people are disincentivized to move with the exception of course, of our millionaires and billionaires that live in California that can move to Austin or, or Idaho or the New Yorkers that move to Miami. But that's not, that's not the general majority of the population. They're disincentivized to move, which is one of the reasons why mobility rates have been under tremendous pressure because it's been keeping people locked in in their existing home. And lastly, I would just say that you do have examples of this. 2018, 2018, our proprietary home building survey, which is basically a few hundred home builders that represent 15 to 20% of the market, that's over 95% correlated to the publicly traded home builders that account for 42% of the market. We saw double digit growth in new home sales from our surveys throughout 18's first half. But rates went from over a little over 4% at the beginning of 2018, finishing the year at 5 plus percent, and the new home orders were, were down double digit. So for a brief period, we saw year over year pressure. We saw home prices coming under pressure. We saw incentives picking up, but they got bailed out by the Fed because Trump beat up Jay Powell and they started pulling back and rates fell and the market re resumed growth. So rates are absolutely the linchpin and what can really change the dynamics of the market. Now, I had, I'd spoken to a large brokerage firm. The CEO asked me to speak and he goes, well, Ivy, maybe interest rates, mortgage rates will go to 1%. I said, well, then party on. As long as the rate of change is to the positive, creating more euphoria, more incentive to continue to, to look at this asset class, I think will be wrong. But if rates were to go up, and I'm not going to call rates, that's not my job. I have been wrong trying to forecast rates forever. But the Fed is going to start tapering. We're going to hear from Jay Powell today. And you know, mortgage-backed security prices, if you have a little less demand, are likely to go lower. And if MBS prices go lower, yields go higher. So I can't imagine rates are not going higher. And we've got inflation. I mean, the housing market is just nuts right now. The inflation in every component, land, labor, materials. Builders, by the way, if you signed a sales contract right now, you and your wife said, I'm going to go buy a house and pay you know, half a million dollars builders don't want you to sign a contract because by the time they actually deliver you that home, it might cost them an extra 50 to a hundred thousand dollars. Lumber so guess prices could be 300% higher. Yeah, exactly. Well, lumber's down, but what they'll do is they'll speculate. They build and they continue to build on a hope that you and your wife will sign a sales contract when that house is now closer to completion. 
Um, Ivy, I've just been smiling the whole time you've been talking uh, because this is exactly, I mean, exactly that conversation that I've been looking to have with a, with a real estate specialist. Uh, so thank you so much for coming on and, and just being who you are here. Um, thank gosh, you. So many things I want to dig into there. Uh, I do want to get to the affordability part. Uh, that really was kind of the core of this. So I, I'm going to get there in just a second. But you, you, you brought up the elephant in the room, which is the Fed, right? Which is kind of everything is driven by mortgage rates. Mortgage rates are driven by Fed policy. Um, he also mentioned the, the taper, right? And so you know we're, we're talking on November 3rd, I think, if I'm uh, remembering the calendar yep. right. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. And Powell's just about to speak. Uh, so we're going to find out how, how really, really serious he is about the taper. But so far, he's been saying, you know, we're going to do it. Um, so as you said, if the Fed does indeed start tapering its purchases, I think that the trajectory that it's sort of mapped out, it's trying to set expectations for is that the remind me what it is 60 billion whatever it is 40 billion a month 40 billion worth of 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 mortgage-backed securities a month that it's been Mm -hmm. buying that's going to basically go to zero by next summer uh on on at least the trajectory that they're trying to prepare us for so just to clarify if that were to happen you do think that that rates will go up then well so many factors will you know be let's say somewhat contingent on everything else happening. So the spread between the 10 and 30 year is obviously a a spread we watch and that's been compressed. So mortgage originators are going to kill each other for business. So what may happen if rates go higher and the business slows, they may take less of a, a gain on their gain on sale margin in order to capture volume. So you would expect rates to go higher but if the mortgage industry, which has to keep their machine running, get more aggressive to keep the volume running, it could keep a little bit of a lid on rates. But I would say, I do expect rates to move higher. Are they going to go to 4%? I don't know. Are they going to go to 3.5%? The trajectory would suggest they're moving higher, not lower, under the scenario of a taper. What the mortgage originators do, they can't write mortgages for, for nothing. They have to make money. They're not going to write and lose money on every mortgage they write. So I do expect rates to move higher, but the magnitude is where I, I, I lose confidence in how much. Okay. Well, um, you know, in the future, as rates begin to move one way or the other, I definitely want to have you back on to sort of just prognosticate okay. what you think the implications are going to be. Certainly the Fed writ large, but Jay Powell specifically, because he's sitting in a chair right now, uh, has been the homeowner's best friend over the past decade, right? I mean, they've, they've just been putting massive tailwind against the housing market. It would be very interesting going forward if that secular tailwind stops blowing. Uh, and I think we just, you know, enumerated all the reasons why that could have really serious repercussions for the, the housing market. Um, I could I could literally spend all the rest of our time and more just talking mm-hmm. about that policy in the housing market. But um, so there's two things I want to get to. One is, the um, increase of investors uh, piling into the market, both the individual mom and pop investors, but you also enumerated two other classes, um, kind of, you know, sort of what you you said were sort of the flippers. Uh, You use the term iBuyer, which I think is probably a term that's not familiar to everybody watching this video. So maybe you can explain that in a second. You also then talked about large investors. Uh, and in that Zillow, uh, sorry, that Zillow, that CoreLogic chart I showed at the beginning um, uh, during my intro, I'm going to show another chart right here from the same report that just shows 
um, of the institutions that are buying, um, it is of the biggest institutions that are showing the most growth entering in this market here. So um, we we seem to be having, you know, as you said earlier, you know, um, all of a sudden there's a lot of institutional capital piling into the single family home market, which really hadn't been in before. I mean, I think it really had been more dominated by mom and pop. Um, and now the Black Rocks, the Blackstones of the world are saying, hey, let's just do these massive roll-ups. Um, so you've got big institutions like them. You've got the iBuyers. I'll let you describe what they are in a moment. So the question that I, I, I want to just hear you opine on is how, how, what kind of legs does this trend have? You know, are we eventually going to see uh, the institutional ownership of the uh, U.S. housing inventory, you know, potentially rise not just from 24% of new homes selling or homes selling right now, maybe to 50, maybe to 75. I mean, do, do we at some point down the road here, again, become a nation basically of, of renting vassals from our institutional overlords? No, I don't believe so. I, I think you have to appreciate um, first, let's just talk about the institutional investors it, that they have to get to a point where they can still get a cash on cash return. So at a certain price point, you're not going to make a cash on cash return. You can't rent out a home on a monthly basis enough at some higher price point to justify the investment. So there's a buy box. Now, as home prices have risen, so have rent, so have rents. So what you're seeing right now is a lot of what appears to be um, pricing power for the rental community. So when you think about why, why are rents, like right now our single family rental survey, we have a 98% occupancy. We have blended rent growth that's 8%. We have new move-in rent growth that's running at 15, 16% in some cases and, and recognize that market. Rent, rents have grown historically, just for some perspective, three to 4%. And that would be a really good year. So what has happened is think about the number of homeowners that have actually bought a home that are waiting for the home to be built that are living temporarily in a single family rental, which may be part of why occupancy is so high. So I think we have to recognize that the institutional investors are really limited within the price points that they can make a cash on cash return. So they're not going to own 100% of our housing stock. They're not going to be, we're not going to be a renter nation. And, and maybe them have staying power. Some of them have massive staying power. So Blackstone, by the way, sold out of Imitation Homes. So Imitation Homes is a publicly traded company that Blackstone started. But you've got a lot of institutional capital that believe that build for rent or being in a existing home portfolio is a good long-term investment. They may be the stickiest of all the investors and whether or not they're gonna to continue to buy is gonna be based on their ability to generate the NOI that they promised their investors. So if, if companies are not getting the rent rolls sustained or they're not hitting their numbers, they're, they're quote unquote long-term investors until they're not. So I, I think what you'll see is the stickiest are the SFR guys, the bill for rent, which is sort of a new category. You know, we have publicly traded home builders that are actually doing build for rent merchant communities where they'll, they'll build an entire community and sell it to an SFR or BFR operator. That investor is considered long-term. So that long-term investor, I believe is only long-term until they're not, until, they're in, until their investors are pissed off because they didn't get to their return hurdles that they wanted. And did they start selling that build for rent product if they can't lease it up at the rates they thought? Or do we see leasing rate pressure? Those are all questions that we'll be monitoring and watching. To answer your question on iBuyers, iBuyers 
which is um, stands for instant buyers. So as a mother of three, I can promise you in the homes that I've sold that I had to go through the realtor, get the house clean, get the kids out of the house. It's a, it's a nightmare. So this was a, it's conceptually a great idea. So what they're doing is they're giving consumers in three days based on their algorithms, they're offering the consumer a price for their home with cash in three days, contingent on their inspection. And they may have to put some lipstick on the pig. They want the consumer pays for that. They, they'd say, you have to pay this amount of, um, of cost to fix up the house, but we just afforded you the opportunity to quickly get out of it, not deal with a realtor, not having to show your home. And it's a more delightful experience. That, that iBuyer is now you know, a pretty popular strategy by many players in the market. Zillow was one of the biggest, Open Door, OfferPad, Redfin Now, and they're all in very similar, not only markets, but in similar price points and similar zip codes within these very strong, call it red states or smile states or sand states. So those, that's what an iBuyer is. I hope that helps. Uh, I think it did very much. Thank you. Um, so uh, you don't think that we are, uh, you know, on, on this trail to national serfdom to institutional uh, homeowners, um, which is nice to hear. That's a good relief. Um, and, and you basically said they're, they're most well, that, of them. That, only just gonna... so you know, yeah. Adam, the reason why is because people can't afford the rents they're charging. We show you an analysis, like literally within a mile or two of a four sale, four bedroom, three baths, that's call it, you know, 2000 square feet. You can buy it with an FHA mortgage and pay $2,100 a month, a mile or two up the street. There's a build for rent home. That's four bedrooms, three baths, 2000 square feet, and it's 2,300 a month. So the reason why people is they're not gonna be able to afford it. So it's just as expensive, more expensive. And by the way, it doesn't build wealth over a long period of time. So you think about today, we don't have forced savings in the United States. The only way we have forced saving is through home ownership. Right. People pay a 30-year fixed mortgage. Over time, they build equity and, and that actually creates long-term wealth. That the inequality gap only widens if people are forced to every year have a variable cost that could go up, therefore eating into discretionary income and no forced savings. But today we have people having to live multi-generational because they can't afford those rents that the institutional investors, at some point, we're going to see that there's not enough bodies that can afford that rent. And that's another reason why the, the country won't be owned by you know, the institutional investors and we won't be a renter nation. We just can't afford it. Okay. So um, on that point, so we, when, when we approach that point where they cannot make enough profit, uh, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but um, is there the danger of these players, which hold multiple houses, in many cases, hundreds or thousands of houses in their portfolio, dumping them on the market. And we've just seen the headlines with Zillow this week where you know they've got several markets where they are getting out of thousands of housing uh, houses all at once. Um, I don't think it's necessarily happening you know, the next day, but they're, they're, it looks like they're selling blocks of these houses you know, to another institutional investor for the most part. But you know, could we have sort of very sudden surprising repricing of markets as these large players move a big chunk of their inventory at once? We hope you've been enjoying this discussion with housing expert Ivy Zellman. The interview continues in part two, where Ivy shares her outlook on the housing market looking out the next few years. To watch part two, just click on the link provided in the description of this video below or go to youtube.com slash But before you go, 
please don't forget to support this channel by hitting the like button and then clicking the subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it if you haven't already. It only takes a second and it really does help us reach a lot more users. And if you'd appreciate a free, no strings attached portfolio review by a financial advisor who can help you think through major decisions, like whether to buy or sell real estate given the trends Ivy discusses here, just go to Wealthion.com and we'll help set one up for you. Okay, I'll see you over at part two of our video interview with Ivy Zellman.